The following is a message from Durkeetown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeetown, please visit our website at www.durkeetown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. A young man. <laughs> and uh, really those that invested uh, in my life, you know, I think a lot about you know, the Betty Wicks, uh, John Wicks, uh, John, uh, um, uh, Mr. Black as well, uh, Bob Herman, uh, those people who, who really invested in my life, uh, Bob's son, Bob Herman Jr. as well, uh, just, just those people who, who really took their time out and uh, invested in some way in my life. And that's, that's part of what I'm going to be talking about uh, today as well. Let me read uh, the passage for you. I've been encouraging uh, my Sunday school classes this past, over the past year, to read and really think about God's Word. So when I read this, uh, and I want you to turn in your Bibles, we'll be reading out of Matthew 5, uh, starting in verse 13, going all the way through verse 20. But I really want you to think about the words that are being read pay attention to anything in this sermon, please listen uh, to God's word as it is read. So again, starting in, in Matthew 5, verse 13, Jesus says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We have here illustrations of salt and light. Jesus talks about the law and the prophets. If one were to read Matthew 5, one might be tempted to think that Jesus is teaching here in piecemeal. Jesus starts this, his famous Sermon on the Mount, talking about Beatitudes. Our Lord quickly transitions to parables about salt and light. Jesus then shifts to a conversation about the law and the prophets, giving what many might consider to be mini-sermons on different aspects of Christian living or clarifications on the law. 
Often as we read our scriptures, we look at the headings, we look at the titles, right? And we think to ourselves, full stop, different topic. And if we miss, I'm sorry, and if we miss the fullness of what is in front of us, and we will miss the fullness of what is in front of us if we read our text today like that. We will miss the full orb nature of what Christ is teaching his disciples, and it will go over our heads. These are not disconnected thoughts. There are links in and through the themes of our text today. I hope today to be able to peel back the layers of meaning here. And in the end, you will find that we've only begun to scratch the surface. There's so much that could be said about this text. This morning I talked about, and Pastor talked, uh, he asked me, are, are you ready? You know, before I, I went to St. James and preached, and, uh, you know, I looked at him and I said, well, you know, and that's not because I was unprepared, right, but because there is something weighty about coming before uh, a people and, and expounding God's word. Uh, there's, there's many warnings about how preachers uh, those who have this responsibility will be judged in scriptures. And so I think it's important to pray uh, before uh, we, we dive in here and into our text. So would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for the privilege of being able to come before your people uh, to preach your word in your pulpit. And I pray that you would get me out of the way. Lord, that you were in and through everything that I wrote here, but that you would also let your Holy Spirit lead me in what your people need this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have Jesus here starting with this statement, you are the salt of the earth. You see, all of us are a little bit salty. Now, I don't mean salty in the sense that a pirate is salty or salty in the sense that we say it today or Gen Zers at least say it today to mean jealous or angry or annoyed about something. Certainly, I've been accused on more than one occasion of, of being like that. But that's not what I'm talking about here and that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Salt is literally and metaphorically connected to the idea of life. You see, humans need at least small amounts of salt in our body for our nervous systems to function properly and for our systems to remain in balance. So in a sense, we all have experience with salt. You know, I've had a few experiences myself that are very memorable to me with salt. Maybe you do as well. Once, a very young Brian found himself in the kitchen. I was probably about seven or uh, somewhere between like seven and ten years old. Maybe my mom remembers this. I don't know. We were living on Perry Street in Hudson Falls. And uh, I wanted to make some bread and butter, just a little snack to tide me over until dinner. But I like to experiment, though. And I looked over and I saw a shaker of what I thought was sugar. Some of you are ahead of me already. Sugar doesn't generally come in a shaker, right? But sugar is sweet and tasty, and maybe a combination of these two things would be good. What can I say at times I wasn't the brightest child? You know, I have no justification for doing what I did, 
But my original idea wasn't really all that good. And neither was the abomination created by my error. As it turns out, particularly when you mistake salt for sugar, salt can be a curse. It didn't taste all that good. And in fact, I didn't finish that, whatever you want to call it. My father-in-law may be familiar with my second cursed experience with salt. When I was a teen, I was working with Pastor Mike way back when he was the regional director for Child Evangelism Fellowship here in the Northeast. You see, at this point in my life, I was a real picky eater. I came up with lots of excuses as to why I couldn't eat certain things. Um, But being in missions work, even here in upstate New York, and being a picky eater are not things that go together. So one day while I was working uh, a VBS up north, and I was, a, a nice lady from the host church there offered me some cantaloupe. I didn't like cantaloupe. I still don't like cantaloupe, to be honest with you. And it became pretty apparent pretty quickly that I, you know, even I was trying to be polite and I was trying to eat this, and, and Mike had discussed this with me. You know, hey, Brian, you got to try things that are offered to you. But again, it, it becomes apparent really quickly, I'm not really enjoying what I'm eating. And she, you know, she was like, you don't like cantaloupe? And I was like, no, not really, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to try it and, and eat it. She's like, oh, it's pretty, pretty obvious you don't like it. So she, she offered salt as a remedy, right? Some people put salt on their cantaloupe uh, as a remedy for this. See, for those who like cantaloupe, this is a great idea, right? And it's a blessing, Because what that does is it brings the taste forward. It brings it out and it hits your tongue. It's the first thing that hits your tongue. But for me, who thinks cantaloupe tastes kind of like a dirty sponge, (laughs) not so much. You know, it intensifies the displeasure. So again, salt was to me a curse. But again, for others, it could be a blessing. You know, in the Bible, salt is viewed in much the same way. Salt can be a blessing and it can be a curse. Salt preserves things. Salt makes things taste better most of the time. Salt was used as a purifying agent in the Old Testament. Elisha used it on a polluted spring in 2 Kings 2. Ancient people often rubbed it on newborn babies as a means of purification. We learn this from Ezekiel in chapter 16. I don't know why, by the way. And and Ezekiel is saying he doesn't do that, but the other peoples do. You see, it was used uh, to season food in several places in the Bible, and we learn here in this passage that tasteless salt is thrown out. Salt also is often used as a symbol for death, barrenness, and judgment. In the case of Lot's wife, she is literally turned into a pillar of salt because of disobedience. In Deuteronomy 29, 23, God promises Israel and Moab that the land will be burned out with brimstone and salt if they are disobedient to his covenant. In Jeremiah 17, verse 6, the prophet compares the blessed with the cursed, saying that the cursed will dwell in the parched place of the wilderness in the uninhabited salt land. Even in the book of James in the New Testament, we see fresh water equated with blessing and salt water equated with cursing. Christ here compares his disciples, though, to the salt of the earth. 
So what is Jesus getting at here? Disciples of Christ need to be a preserving agent in society. We need to be a people who, because of our changed natures in Christ, ought to be a blessing to those who are around us. After all, a righteous people is a blessing to a nation. This is pronounced to us all over scriptures. Proverbs 10, 7 says, The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. Very vivid imagery there. Those who practice righteousness and justice in society, according to God's standards, not only bless those in their own time, but even their memory is a blessing, according to the proverb. This is certainly true of our biblical heroes like Moses and David and Peter, Paul, Luke, and the list goes on and on. And this is certainly true as well of people who have left an indelible mark on the church in history. We look fondly back on names of people like Luther and Wycliffe, Calvin, Edwards, Spurgeon, and even more recently for me at least, R.C. Sproul. These men were salt. But don't take this the wrong way, though. I do not mean that to be salt, one must be famous or memorable in the sense that these men are. Most Christians throughout history will never be remembered in the history books. Most likely myself and you who are sitting here in this room. But that doesn't mean that we don't leave something behind. Being salt may mean that you as Pastor Ken put it a few weeks ago, find value in ordinary things. Maybe you do the hard work of making your workplace a better place to be simply because you occupy that realm. You know, for me, this manifests its way, itself in many different ways. So I'm walking down the hall. You know, I've, I've mentioned this many times. I've used this as an illustration many times, but as I'm walking down the hall and people are, are walking out, and I'm like, hi, how you doing? And they're like, good, I'm going the right way, which is out, you know, out of work. Uh, but I made it a point to walk into work and people come by me and they're like, hey, how you doing? As I'm headed into work, I go, good, I'm going the right way. Because work is a blessing from God. Work is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. If anyone who's been out of work when they needed it knows this. But there's a way to be salt even in your workplace. But it takes hard work. It takes concentration. It takes things like that. Maybe you do the hard work of being a mom or a dad or a grandmother or a grandfather. And you do the hard work of raising children in the love and admonition of the Lord. That's hard work. It takes a lot. It's probably one of the most, I think it's, I can't think of anything more important to a society. Often it is said, with, particularly within Christian circles, that the family is the building block of society. And it is. So raising young people to love Jesus is incredibly important to your society. Maybe a lot of the ills that we suffer today could have been prevented if we had been more vigilant about that. 
and we had valued ordinary things like changing diapers or doing dishes. Maybe you're the person who does the hard work of taking time out of your day to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ or to pray even for the pagans in your life that they would come to salvation. That takes tremendous discipline to every day devote yourself to praying for those who are around you. Whether it's praying for the needs of your brothers and sisters who are here in the church or or praying for those who don't know Christ to come to know him. You know, there's little things in there that if we were to not think about it very hard, we would consider ordinary or trivial. And we don't think of these things as us being salt in the world. But if we do them and things like them, we'll not only preserve society, but we will leave a tremendous taste for the gospel in the mouth of the world. Conversely, though, and I mentioned this, sometimes salt can be a curse. And sometimes in being salt, you might be a curse to someone. You know, when I hear this passage preached, I often hear about the blessing part of it, but the cursed aspect of salt are left out. But sometimes as Christians, no matter how salty you are, metaphorically speaking, people will spit you out of their mouths. You see, Christ is a stumbling block to some, and he has warned us, if they hated me, they will hate you. There are going to be times in your attempt to be salty that the world is not going to find what you have to say to be very palatable. Christ's message was simple, right? And we heard it a couple weeks ago from Pastor Ken. Repent and believe. Most like the belief part. However, many find the repenting aspect a bit tasteless. Those who are in the world are on the side of the world, and they will not swallow the truth of the gospel. And all the while, they'll claim, that's a bit too salty. We know what it's like, again, when we put too much salt on something, right? All you can taste is the salt. And for those who aren't acclimated to it, those who haven't been prepared... It's going to become a curse. It will be like that salted cantaloupe in their mouths. For me, anyway. Some of you probably love cantaloupe. But if you consistently preach the message, repent and believe, you will be called judgmental. You will be called a hypocrite. You will be persecuted, as it says in the Beatitudes. And it may cost you some temporal things in this life. In that sense, you have become a stumbling block and a curse to those around you. But do not fear, because you follow in good footsteps. Just like Christ calls us to be the salt of the earth, Christ continued on in this passage, and he said this, you are the light of the world. Light is one of those amazing mysteries of science. We think we know a thing or two about light. It travels at 186, 282 miles per second. Not per hour, per second. At least when we bounce it off a mirror. That's the two-way light, speed of light. Light, uh, and and that's really fast. It's, It's incredibly fast. 
we know that light acts both as a particle and a wave, and that's really hard for anyone to, to really wrap their heads around. It's hard for me. I don't understand it, to be honest with you. It's very weird in that sense. But light does this. It provides us with warmth and illumination. And while we can describe certain aspects of light, we still don't really know the substance of what exactly it is and how it functions. Yet the Bible talks about it often, but it talks about it in very simple terms. That's what's great about the Bible. Right from the beginning in Genesis, we see God who created light, and he separates it from darkness. Light is often brought up in juxtaposition to darkness. John 1 claims that Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that Jesus is the true light, which gives light to everyone. In Matthew, Jesus claims here that we are to be light. Jesus has given us light. What does that mean in the biblical language, though? You see, light is an illumination, or that which reveals things. Without light, you, me, and everyone else is in the dark, is in darkness. This is a glorious word picture in the scriptures. If Jesus is the light, he reveals something. If we are the light, we reveal something. What is that something? And it's a pretty simple Sunday school answer here. We reveal God. The harder question to answer is how do we, fallen human beings, reveal God, as Jesus asked us to do in this passage? This is where we need to pay, pay very close attention. You see, walking in the light is equated in many places in the Bible with walking and ordering your life according to God's plans, purposes, and character. We talked a lot about this when we studied Colossians last year in Sunday school. I would argue that one of the key things that reveals God's plan, purpose, and character in Scripture is actually His law. This is hard for evangelical independent Baptists to wrap their heads around, and I want to make it perfectly clear here that I'm not preaching works righteousness to you today, but I do want you to consider Psalm 119, 105 through 109. It's a very long psalm. If you want to turn there, you can. Give you a little bit of time to get there. Again, Psalm 119, verse 105, starting in verse 105. But again, some very interesting wordplay here around light. The psalm says this Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirm it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. Psalm 119 all throughout it, is talking about God's law, and it talks about it in just eloquent ways, and it talks about it very positively. You see, God's word here in this passage is equated with God's law. God's word and law are a lamp and a light. They tell us who God is. After all, we are meant 
in the very beginning to be imagers of God. We are made in the image of God. And so when we order our lives as Christians according to God's law, we are imaging God and representing him in the world properly. When we do not do this, we have effectively hidden our lamp under a basket, as Jesus said in our passage today. Jesus says here very explicitly that we are to let our light shine before others so that we can see, uh, so that they can see our what? Our good works. Why? So that when we go out and do good works, they will say, boy, what a great preacher that Brian Herrick is or that Ken Prater is. He really turned those people's lives around? No. So that when you let your light shine and do good works, they will say, gee, that so-and-so is such an amazing person. They could do anything. They're so holy. No. God's influence in your life ought to be so evident in you that people around you, out loud or in secret, cannot deny his influence over your life. And this is where the last part of what Jesus says here comes into play. We need to reveal God by the way that we act in the world, not for our glory, not for your glory, but for God's glory, for the Father's glory. What Jesus says next is very difficult for modern evangelicals to grasp. It is imperative that we understand what Jesus is saying here. It does not seem to jive well with our understanding of the gospel, and it can be jarring for us to read something like, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is Jesus saying here? And again, Jesus goes into this conversation about law and prophets. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus refers, yes, to the Old Testament body of work when he says the law and the prophets. And he certainly has not come to abolish, throw down, demolish, or destroy the previous revelation that has been given by God. However, in a very real sense, and this is made clear later in our passage, Jesus is also referring to the commandments that are given both by the law and the prophets in the Old Testament as well. This isn't just about the Ten Commandments. This is about the entirety of what God commands us in the Old Testament, and I would argue throughout the New Testament as well. The law prophesied about Jesus until he came, according to Matthew eleven thirteen. Hebrews 10 tells us that the law was a shadow of the good things to come. That is, it was a shadow of the work and life of Christ. Again, God's law tells us, illuminates for us, demonstrates for us who he is. Jesus is fulfilling the law in several ways. One, he obeys it perfectly, which reveals to us who he is. Two, his obedience to the law reveals something about who the Father is as well. Jesus says in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Christ is the perfect image, an imager of the Father. Consider the following quote by Richard France, and this is going to help us to understand what Jesus means when he says he fulfills the law. Richard France says this, to fulfill is to bring about that which Scripture pointed, and that is what Jesus has now done. But the fulfillment of the law does not mean its abolition. It remains wholly authoritative and demands the fullest respect of the disciple. Let me read that last part again. It remains 
wholly authoritative and demands the fullest respect of the disciple. France correctly points out that Jesus' fulfillment of the law does not mean that the law disappears or is done away with. Protestants are often heard citing Paul in Romans 6.14, for sin will have no dominion over you, since we are not under law, but under grace. Sometimes it's cited in the correct context, but often it is being used to justify all sorts of sordid living, which is unfortunate, because Paul then goes on to say, what shall we then do? Sin so that grace may abound, and gives a whole section about why we should be conformed to God and be his imager. So it's important to note here that Paul thinks this will make a practical difference in the way one lives, as sin will have no dominion over you. Two, Paul is talking specifically about how one is justified before God here, and immediately goes on to encourage people towards righteous living as a result of the grace that we are now under. Paul also says that the law is good for those who use it lawfully. Paul often cites the law in his letters, giving us examples of how we are to live today. So it is clear that the law, even as we are under a covenant of grace, still has some role to play. Verse 18 seems to imply, verse 18 in our text seems to imply, that the law will have a function until heaven and earth pass away, and until all is accomplished. This to me sounds very much like the second coming or the second advent of Christ. Christ then offers up two warnings. First, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. A few observations here. One, two types of people are mentioned here. Those who loosen or relax the kingdom, I'm sorry, the commandments and those who do the commandments. Both are mentioned as having a place in the kingdom of heaven. Very interesting. Doesn't put those who loosen and relax outside of the kingdom of heaven. I think people miss that a lot of times. So even in this passage, which is heavy on the law, we see the grace of God coming through. Those who commit the grievous sin of practicing and teaching others to live licentiously or with license and to play fast and loose with the law of God are still somehow found in his kingdom, albeit with some form of lesser status. I think it is significant. Uh, the ones who do and teach others to follow and obey God's law are also found in his kingdom, but some greater reward seems to await them in eternity. This is not works righteousness as taught by Rome or some other apostate church. The grace of God is amazing, and I believe we see it shining through here in the words of Christ. I think this is the scarier statement when Christ says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I remember when I first read it, my heart kind of jumped into my throat. It's kind of scary. Now, if we were in a debate with someone who believed the scriptures teach, teaches works-based salvation, you might think they have me here. This would be one of those gotcha moments, right? Well, not so fast. I'm going to say this bluntly. My righteousness does exceed that 
of the scribes and the Pharisees. If you are a Christian who has given yourself to Christ, yours does too. This is because my righteousness is not mine. It's not my righteousness. The moment the Holy Spirit blew life into my dead bones, my sins ceased being mine. The moment the Holy Spirit blew life into my dead bones, Jesus' righteousness was imputed or given to me. My sins were nailed to a cross. So my righteousness does exceed the scribes and the Pharisees because my righteousness is His righteousness. God looks at me and sees Him. I've been given a new heart, as Ezekiel prophesied. God has taken out my heart of stone and He's given me a heart of flesh. The heart issue is what Jesus is getting at here. And that becomes more and more evident as you read along in Matthew. You see, the sermon doesn't end here. Jesus goes through his law, continually emphasizing that the understanding of the scribes and the Pharisees doesn't even come close, doesn't come near to the standard that he has set. They have set up man-made traditions. They seem to have it all together on the outside, and by all appearances, they appear to be righteous. Yet Jesus, over and over again, demonstrates that he is not after blind duty and an overly literal observance of the law. God wants your heart. So indeed, we are under grace and not under law. Paul teaches us in Ephesians, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. So we are saved by grace. Jesus is not teaching anything different than that here. But we are saved by grace for good works. You see, works are a result of salvation. They're not the means of salvation. And I would say this, we can't neglect holiness. God calls us to be holy as he is holy. So Christian, if you have accepted Christ and you are following him, do not neglect holiness. And at the same time, that grace doesn't cease to function for us when we're doing good works. Even the good works that we do are because of the grace of Jesus Christ. So we are not perfect, but we must continually strive to be holy. Obedience is often worked out, like I said before, and like Pastor Ken said a couple weeks ago, in the hard and ordinary things in life. Do we act in a Christian manner? Do we think Christianly about the way that we do things? Whether that's washing the dishes, changing diapers, praying, driving our car, talking to people at work, in all things, are we doing things to the glory of God? That would warn us not to be like the scribes and the Pharisees. Don't do things 
to your own glory, but do things for the glory of your Father who is in heaven as Christ Jesus did. We are to be salt and we are to be light in the world. Talked a lot about those two things today. So start thinking in your life, what are the areas? Where can I be salt? Where can I be life? What are the ordinary things? What are the hard things that I might have to do in order to do them in a Christian way? In order to order my life in the way that God would have me order it, according to his plan, his purpose, his character. What are the ways that I can do that? What are my spheres of influence? These are all things that we need to think about on a daily basis. And I pray that we will do them. So let's do that now. Let's, let's go to God in prayer and ask him to work in our lives. Father God, I... I thank you so much again for this privilege of coming uh, before your people to preach again from your pulpit. Um, Lord, I pray that today has been an offering of us corporately uh, asking you to speak to us, as Todd said. And Lord, that we would learn to listen and to listen acutely, Lord. And Lord, that we would remember what is being said to us and that we would go out into the world and we would do those things. Father, by your grace, you enable us to conform to your image. Lord, that we can be sanctified and we can can live lives that are holy, set apart for you, in a world that is not holy. And we can do this through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that that makes a mark in each one of the lives that is in this room, each one of the souls that is in this room. I pray for those who have not given themselves to you. And I pray that they would seek out someone who can share with them the good news of your arrival here of your death, your burial, and your resurrection. And not only that, your ascension as prophet, priest, and king at the right hand of the Father. I pray that they would come to the knowledge of who you are and what you've done. We pray for their salvation today. Father, again, we thank you for this time of worship, and we pray that that is exactly what has been done here today. Thank you for listening to this message from Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.